Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Colorado Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries, as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy. News that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. Our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, we take a close look at Youth with a Mission, better known as YWAM. We also look at the possible financial liability that Ravi Zacharias International Ministries may have towards victims of its founders' sexual abuse. We begin today with news of a women's conference that raised $1.5 million for Bible translation. But the question remains about where the money is actually going. Yeah, the headline in Christian media last weekend seemed to tell a remarkable feel-good story. Attendees at a virtual women's conference led by best-selling author Jenny Allen pledged more than $1.5 million to an effort to translate the Bible for unreached people. More than 750 women viewing the If Gathering Conference on March 6 signed up within the first five minutes to support Illumination's 12-verse challenge, which asked donors to pledge $35 a month for a year to help cover the translation costs for just 12 Bible verses. Christianity Today was among those reporting the story. The women raised enough to translate the entire Bible, a million dollars, in about five hours. Eventually, the total number of givers topped 6,300, and the amount of money raised hit that $1.5 million number that we've been talking about. Oh, that seems pretty remarkable. Well, it is. Uh, tremendous generosity on the part of the 6,000-plus uh, people who contributed. However, I've been reporting on the Bible translation industry for about a year now, and uh, I knew that the organization these women were giving to, called Illuminations, doesn't actually translate Bibles at all. Illuminations is the fundraising arm of about a dozen Bible translation organizations, and many of them don't actually translate directly even themselves, but they in turn give grants to yet other organizations in countries around the world that does the actual translating. Oh, that sounds pretty complicated. Yeah, it is. And that's one of the problems right now with the Bible translation industry. It's made up of a web of interrelated organizations, some of whom don't know what their partners are actually doing. We've written about 10 stories on the Bible translation industry in the past year or so, and we'll be writing more in the weeks ahead. But the bottom line is that the Bible translation industry is at a crossroad, and it kind of doesn't know what to do with itself right now. All of the major languages in the world have been translated. In fact, they've been translated for hundreds of years. Most of the languages that do not have a Bible translation are either dead or dying languages with just, a, in some cases, only a few hundred native speakers. And most of those native speakers are people that also speak another language that already has a Bible translation. So are you saying that there's no longer a need for Bible translations? I mean, after 2,000 years, is the job actually done now? Well, I'm not saying that the job is completely done, but it will be in a few years, and that means that the job is radically changing. Um, the Bible translation industry is not, though, changing with it, uh, and there are 
covering that up with these complicated organizational structures, a lack of transparency, and, and other kind of permutations, because donors are still giving about $400 million a year to Bible translation organizations. And if the donors really knew what was going on, a lot of these donors would probably just go away. So what do you recommend for donors who might be listening? Well, it's the same thing I would recommend to donors of any organization. Know the organization you're giving to, ask for their financial statements, read articles on Ministry Watch, because as I said, by now we've got about eight or 10 articles up there on Bible translation, and we're doing more uh, on a, certainly on a monthly basis, and really more often than that. Uh, Read our articles, read other people's articles, and if you're not getting the answers that you like, stop giving to those organizations and find others that are more deserving of support. Yeah, that sounds like great advice. Now, we're in our next story is a follow-up to one that we reported on before. A couple of weeks ago, we reported that the Southern Baptist Convention said that a church in Tennessee, which is Antioch Baptist Church in Sevierville, could no longer be a part of the convention because it knowingly hired a pastor who had confessed to statutory rape 20 years ago. What's the latest there? Yeah, now that pastor has resigned from the church. Uh, Pastor Randy Lemming Jr. had served Antioch Baptist Church in Sevierville uh, for uh, about seven years, since 2014, and he announced his resignation recently. Uh, In fact, it was a couple of weeks ago that he announced the resignation locally, but it's only now being reported in the media. The SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, voted back in 2019 to amend its constitution to make sexual abuse one of the stated grounds for disfellowshipping a church, which was why the SBC disfellowshipped that church a couple of weeks ago. According to a 1998 decision in a Tennessee appeals court, Lemming was 31 years old at the time, and he was a pastor of Shiloh Baptist Church, which is also in Sevier County, Tennessee. And in 1994, he had performed um, sexual acts on a 16-year-old victim on two occasions. Shiloh Baptist, I should note, is within six miles of Antioch Baptist Church, the church that he just resigned from. So it's unlikely that his new church didn't know about his conviction, which, by the way, had carried with it an 18-month prison sentence. Our next story involves Christian summer camps. Now, Steve Raby called a few of the largest ones and found out what they're doing this summer. What did he learn? Well, uh, 2020 among the Christian camp industry has been called the bummer summer uh, because COVID had shut down so many of the Christian camps or caused them to limit their sessions in uh, some way. And, and, and three camps actually had spawned an outbreak. Um, m- most, um, though, are looking at 2021 as a chance to return to something resembling normal, if not complete normalcy. Um, they're going to be, uh, in the words of the Christian Camping Association, more happy campers uh, this summer because 45 states will now allow camping. That's an increase from 39 states last year. And this week, that same association is actually formally known as the Christian Camp and Conference Association released a survey from its 843-member camps, uh, which prior to 2020 hosted as many as 5 million campers a summer. And that survey found that 98% of those responding said that they will be opening in some form this summer, and many have already opened registration. That, according to Greg Hunter, who's the organization's president. Now, one Christian 
camp, Canacook, had a COVID outbreak last summer, and that made national news. Yeah, Canacook Camps operates six facilities in Missouri that typically host about 20,000 kids a summer, one of the largest in the country. The Canacook Camp near Branson, Missouri, had about 82 positive COVID cases towards the end of the summer. And by the way, I should disclose that one of those who tested positive was my own daughter, who was on staff at Canacook last summer. Uh, Canacook did not respond to our request for information about its plans for 2021, but on its website, it said it was offering a wide range of options, some of which had already sold out. Canacook's website also said that the camps have had strengthened its standard cleaning procedures and taken measures to monitor and address symptomatic campers by daily temperature checks and protocols to isolate, confirm, respond, and ultimately, if necessary, remove any camper or staff member who is suspected of having COVID-19. And what about my favorite camp, Summit Ministries here in Colorado? Yeah, well, Summit Ministries, your favorite camp and one of mine as well, says that 2021 will be the second straight year that it will have no students attending the summer conferences actually in Manitou Springs at that historic hotel, uh, Natasha, that you and I love and that, of course, many thousands of campers have grown to love over the years as well. That that hotel, it's actually a renovated hotel from the 19th century, late 19th century. Um, it's got sort of small dorm-style bedrooms, a big dining room, a main lecture room. But um, those features, which everybody kind of loves, actually have run afoul of three different Colorado regulations that cover overnight youth camps, commercial dining, and conference centers. So instead, someone announced this week that it would be um, working to handle its campers at different summer locations. It'll be taking five sessions on the road at Arizona Christian University, uh, Covenant College in Georgia, and Anderson University in South Carolina, These are all states uh, where the rules are a little bit less stringent. And I should also mention that last year, because they couldn't meet in person, they sort of pioneered this virtual conference that ended up being really successful and popular. So they're going to do two virtual summer sessions this year as well. So I guess uh, what Satan intended for evil, at least in this case, God has turned into some good. That's right. He's good at that. And finally, what about Young Life, which is probably one of the biggest of them all? Yeah, uh, we you know we mentioned that Canacook had about twenty thousand campers, and that's at a single location. Well, of course, Young Life has camps all over the country, but they accommodated ninety three thousand campers in twenty nineteen. But last April 9th, uh, they announced that they were suspending all U.S. ministry that involved person to person contact. That meant that that by the time April rolled around, only about fifteen thousand people had been to a Young Life experience in twenty twenty. But this year, they're opening back up, at least in part. They've got a couple of camps that they're still not going to be open. Um, Those are two in Canada in particular because of the cross-border regulations. But the ones here in the United States are going to be mostly open. About 61,000 campers are expected to attend um, Young Life camps this year. That's lower than that 93,000 that I mentioned a few moments ago, but certainly it's kind of a return to normal. 
Warren, we need to take a break here, but when we return, we're going to take a look at what sort of financial liability Ravi Zacharias International Ministries might be facing as a result of the sexual improprieties of its founder. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. We'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, let's continue with a look at the financial liability of Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Now, Warren, I understand that our reporter, Shannon Cuthrill, looked into this question. Yeah, of the barrage of legal questions arising from the sexual misconduct and abuse allegations that surround RZIM, Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and its late founder, two questions kind of stood out to me, and I asked Shannon to look into them. First, can donors hold the organization and its board financially liable? In other words, can they ask for their money back? And secondly, what sort of liability does RZIM have towards the victims themselves? And what were the answers? Well, the short answer to that first question is that the donors probably don't have much recourse. Uh, when you give money to a ministry, even if the ministry does foolish things with that money, you usually just can't ask for the money back. The only exception would be a donor that might have given money designated for a particular function, such as to build a building. And that money might instead have gone to, say, pay hush money to a victim. In those cases, the donor might, and I really want to emphasize might, be able to have some recourse and possibly even get their money back. That's called clawing back the donation. Now, the other question is a bit more complicated. It's almost certain that RZIM has a financial liability to the victims if the victims can prove abuse on the one hand, and secondly, further prove that RZIM either contributed to or failed to take appropriate steps to keep that abuse from happening. At least two victims are now in conversations with RZIM about settlements, and those are just two that I know of. How much money are we talking about? Well, again, it's kind of hard to say. Uh, we looked at uh, some other sex abuse cases, and the numbers were just honestly all over the board. Uh, the Catholic church clergy sex case is one that a lot of people know about. Uh, that turned into a class action case. The church had to pay literally 
billions of dollars, but that money went to tens of thousands of victims. Media reports that I read say that the average victim got between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollars uh, in the that case. The most recent high-profile case that involved sexual abuse involved the Boy Scouts of America, another case that some of our listeners may know about. In fact, we've even reported on that here at Ministry Watch. That case is likely just getting started. The Boy Scouts made an initial offer of $300 million to the victims, but lawyers for the victims say that that number was woefully inadequate. Keep in mind that we're talking about nearly 100,000 victims who have made a claim against the Boy Scouts. So this case um, could also approach a billion dollars when all is said and done. But in the Ravi Zacharias case, there aren't thousands of victims, so this won't be a class action case. Yeah, you're right, though, and here's the sad reality. We really don't know how many victims there are yet. And sometimes the individual cases, while smaller in the aggregate, can individually be quite large. For example, Canacook camps, which we mentioned just a few moments ago uh, when we were talking about COVID, had a sexual abuse case against them a few years ago. Uh, A staff member sexually abused a number of children whenever he was on staff, and just a single one of those cases uh, caused a $20 million judgment for the victim. A lot of those settlements are under non-disclosure agreements, but I've talked to people that are close to the Canacook cases, and they tell me uh, that the total of the judgments against Canacook and former Canacook staff members could approach $100 million. Does RZIM even have that much money? No, they don't. Uh, Our analysis of their assets indicate that it has about $40 million, uh, though it does seem likely that they have some form of liability insurance, which could be brought into play here. That, of course, happened with the Boy Scouts. The Boy Scouts have some liability insurance. Um, That uh, would give RZIM some protection uh, if they do have that insurance, and it's good insurance, but it also raises the stakes for all the parties involved because that means there is a much bigger possibility of money, and I should add more lawyers that are in play. So what's the bottom line here? What's the lesson for the rest of us? Well, I think the bottom line is that RZIM will almost certainly have some financial liability to its victims, but that liability will likely not extend to the board members themselves. Uh, A lesson for all Christian ministries is to make sure you have sexual abuse policies in place, not only to protect victims, but to protect the organization from rogue staff members and to make sure that you have good directors and officers liability insurance. Orrin, let's move on to a story about churches in Southern California that are using land to help the homeless. Yeah, as Southern California's housing crisis uh, has grown, um, it's fueled homelessness throughout the region. It's just gotten so expensive to have a house or even rent an apartment there. A number of churches, particularly black churches and Hispanic churches, are stepping up to build affordable housing on their church land. How does that work? Well, a lot of urban churches have been in decline in recent years uh, as populations have moved out to the suburbs. So some churches have big buildings, 
but not a lot of members. Um, they no longer need, for example, big parking lots or maybe gymnasiums or other facilities that they might have needed in years past. So um, they're pooling their resources and negotiating as a group with developers who might have been able to take advantage of them if they had negotiated as individual churches. So one alliance that uh, we reported on was an alliance of about two hundred member churches, most of them African-American. A number of Latino evangelical churches are also a part of that network. That sounds like an interesting plan. Is it working? Well, it's still early. Uh, getting to full build out on big projects like this can take years and sometimes even decades. But I can say that the project has attracted about $100 million in private equity partners and about seven housing projects on church land is right now, even as we speak, in some stage of development. Now, Warren, I noticed that you've been doing a few more investigative stories on the website. And this week, you took a deep dive into Youth with a Mission, better known as YWAM. Yeah, YWAM has done a lot of great work over the years. Um, and when I say over the years, I really should say over the decades. Uh, it began in 1960. But because it's not a single centralized organization. It has had a lot of rogue elements over the years. Uh, there have been instances of financial impropriety, uh, embezzlement, I should say, and other uh, problems that have sort of creeped into the ministry whenever there have been bad actors in some of the faraway locations. So we tried to figure out how YWAM was organized and what donors to the ministry need to know. And what did you find out? Well, first, YWAM, as I said, isn't a single organization. It's a network of linked ministries. There are hundreds of YWAM organizations, but no headquarters. Um, that has allowed it to grow fast because if you wanted to start one, you were just kind of allowed to do so. Uh, more than 4 million people have worked for YWAM over the years, and they've been in more than 240 countries. Now, I know some of you might have your head exploding right now because we don't even have 240 countries in the world today, but over the years, especially before the Soviet Union was broken up and so on, uh, you know, that's where YWAM was. They went into the tough parts of the world. But all that growth comes with a cost, I take it. Yeah, it does. The training is minimal. Lots of staffers join as soon as they turn 18 years old, and uh, they go through just a couple of months of training, and then they're sent out into the world. Sometimes they're sent out around the world. Um, now, I should say that YWAM also makes each person sign a very robust liability release that, among other things, excuses YWAM from any liability whatsoever arising out of injury, damage, or loss. And if you happen to die while you're serving YWAM in some far-off country, and I should add that that isn't unheard of. It's happened before. Don't count on anyone sending your body back home. YWAM even has a statement of burial that says that the priority for limited resources on outreach and frontline work must be for the living. That's a direct quote. And grants YWAM permission to, and again, a direct quote, carry out the burial in the location of my death because decay can start very quickly. So I'll ask the question again that I asked her earlier. What's the bottom line here? Well, I would say that over the years, I've generally been a fan of YWAM. I've had exposure to YWAM staffers who are some of the most effective and passionate Jesus followers that I've ever met. But I would have to say 
too, that now that I know a little bit more and maybe I'm a little bit older and can, you know, realize what what might go wrong, that um, I would recommend serious reforms for YWAM. And if someone asked me, I would counsel against donating money to YWAM until some of those reforms. Well, Warren, we have to take another break here, but when we return our weekly lightning round of ministry news, I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, we like to use these last segments as a sort of lightning round of short news briefs. So what do you have first? Well, the nonprofit sector lost about a million jobs over the first year of the coronavirus pandemic, with losses in the healthcare and education fields accounting for almost three out of the five job losses. The Center for Civil Society Studies at Johns Hopkins University has been tracking job losses in the nonprofit sector since the pandemic was declared, and they estimate that job losses uh, based on information that they get from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they compare that to pre-pandemic levels of February of 2020. Are those jobs coming back? Yeah, they are, but slowly. On Friday, the Center for Civil Society Studies that I just mentioned released its latest report for February, and they estimated that job growth from January to February was a modest but definitely positive 2.8%, about 27,000 jobs overall. Up next, we have news of the death of Luis Palau. Yeah, last week, uh, Natasha, you and I talked about Luis Palau going into hospice care. And this week, I'm sad to report the news that he did indeed pass away last Thursday at the age of 86. And I want to also mention that uh, I interviewed Luis Palau back in 2019, and I have that interview, which is, by the way, I think a really beautiful interview. He's just such, he was just such a fun guy, such an encouraging and upbeat and positive guy. I would recommend that you go to my Listening In podcast, which I do for World Magazine, and listen to that entire conversation there. Or you can go to our website, ministrywatch.com, and my friend Mark Pensky wrote an extended appreciation of him on our site. And who do you have in the ministry spotlight this week? Well, we're going to do more coverage of the Bible translation industry. You know, we talked about that earlier in the program. Uh, So we're going to be featuring more Bible translation organizations in our ministry spotlight. We're not going to give it totally 
over to Bible translation uh, organizations, but we'll do more. And this week we have one of those organizations, SIL International. SIL used to be known as the Summer Institute of Linguistics. It began as a summer training program in 1934, but has grown into an organization that spans the globe. And you can read Rod Pitzer's profile of SIL International at the Ministry Watch website. And we have another new batch of ministries making a difference. We certainly do. Christina Darnell has uh, found some great news from Ligonier Ministries, Skyway Railroad, and Mission Aviation Fellowship. And by the way, Skyway Railroad is an interesting organization. It was inspired by the Underground Railroad, which of course took place during the slavery era in this country. They operate a call center that reaches out to women that are advertised in escort service ads. They conduct outreach in strip clubs and bars around the country and also venture into high crime areas to distribute food, toiletries, and share the gospel. The goal, of course, is to give these women a way out of the sex trade if they want. Oh, that's wonderful. And with that, we need to bring today's program to a close. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosel and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Rod Pritzer, Adele Banks, Ann Stike, Steve Raby, Mark Pinsky, Alejandra Molina, and Shannon Cuthrill. And thanks to our friends of the Nonprofit Times for contributing materials to this week's program. I'm Natasha Smith in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch Podcast. Until next time, may God bless you.